This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Good news, it's not just me talking for, by myself for the next 54 minutes. I've actually got a friend with me today and I'm super, super excited to introduce Lily. Kia ora, Samleikum. Welcome to the show. Kia ora, Amal. Nice to see you again. <laughs> I love how we're just like, hi, hi, as if we don't know who we are, but we've literally known each other for maybe 10 years now. Yeah, I mean, a woman's got to keep some secrets to herself, right? But but several years, several years, it feels like forever in a really lovely way. Mm. <laughs> I was going to say, what do you mean by that, forever? Um, yes, I met Lily in high school, and this was like my second high school, so I was really nervous, and I really didn't know anyone, um, but Lily is one of the very friendly faces who just like literally brought me in um, and made me feel like I was at home, so it's been really nice. And also, Lily is one of those people who just literally does everything, so I'm going to hand it over to you, Lils, to introduce yourself in whatever way you feel comfortable. So who you are and, you know, what are the places that feel like home to you and what you do? Tell us, sis. Okay. Oh, kia ora. Thanks for that really um, stunning introduction. I feel like there's a lot to live up to there. But as you've already sort of stated, um, my name's Lily, um, Lillian A. Ng. I'm based here in Pōneke, but my ancestors come from a little bit further afield. So my dad's family come from China. Uh, and my mum's family, half of them um, came to Wellington on some of the first European settler ships uh, in the late 1800s. And um, the other half came to New Zealand from Tokelau, which is a Pacific island. Um, and we met in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my earliest kind of memories of, of seeing you and your sister was thinking that, man, that looks like the kind of girl that my auntie would really want me to be friends with. Um, and sure enough, as the years went on, that proved to be true to the point where at times I felt like my auntie or my, my mum was better friends with you than me sometimes. <laughs> but do you remember, I remember coming home. Um, after Annie Margaret had a hip operation and you guys were like reading a book, like a mag- you know, a quality magazine or something in bed. And I was like, oh, and we, we, I didn't realize you were coming over a mile and you're like, oh yeah, I just came, popped by to see your auntie. And I'm like, oh, okay. What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> <laughs> I love your auntie. Oh, that's really sweet. Oh my gosh. Um, fond memories. That's really sweet. And before we get into the really hard chat, just a quick fire get to know you. Mm. Um, Favorite hit from the 2000s? Very important question. (laughs) I feel like I've just had a massive brain fart. I can't remember if this is early 2000s, but Len, Steal My Sunshine. I'm not going to give you a musical rendition. Y'all can Google it later. Okay, I was going to say, I don't remember that one. I would love a musical rendition, but I was like, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> oh, what I about can't. Cheeky? I'm sorry, what's that about? What about Cheeky Harm of the song? Um, it, it kind of has like a spoken word quality to it, so it's not even, Ooh. yeah. Len, Steal My Sunshine, and it like samples some kind of like, yeah, it samples stuff in the way that like late nineties, early two thousand pop songs do. But yeah, I'll let you check it out in your own time because I don't. I'm not going to subject anyone to this <laughs> to an attempt. And I'm losing. I'm rapidly losing confidence that that is even a hit from the two thousands. But anyway, it still stands. It's a That's a it sounds like a bad hit. Way, regardless of when it came from. Um, next question: What would your younger self not believe about your life today? What would my younger self not believe about life today? Honestly, Amal, I was a really gullible child, so I feel like this. 
very little that if you told me was true that I that I would have challenged you on. Um, but there's definitely some things I would have found surprising. Um, and there, I think that's, they're all things that are very common to the human experience. You know, like I would have been probably surprised at how much it sucks to fall in love and then out of love. And um, I guess kind of, you know, surprised about the power that we each individually have over other people's thoughts and feelings, you know, like I would have been surprised to find that my own actions could both like potentially make someone feel really shit without even meaning to, but also that words and actions have such a, can have such a positive impact on the people that you love too. So there's lots of things that surprised me as I got older, but there's definitely nothing I would have flat out not believed because I was so easy to trick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> says the girl who would trick me all the time when like, we first met oh, oh my, my gosh goodness. so that was obviously me handing on my trauma sorry i but i i unreservedly apologize for that <laughs> i've grown out of that don't worry but man <laughs> things i would believe when i was younger jeez um but i actually really relate to that and it's so funny that you've mentioned it because i was thinking about that the other day i was like <clears throat> this is so cheesy, but I was just looking at us and I was like, wow, I like never knew that love could really feel like this mm. and what like true deep love can, can do to someone. Um, oh, that's really sweet. Oh, I love, I love it for you guys. Spoken like a true newlywed. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, people oh, always... something else and I look at him. <laughs> Um, but, oh, that's really sweet. Um, and then last question, um, when was the last time that you had a really good yarn? And it can be related to anything. It can be very surface level. It can be deep. But when was the last time you had a really good conversation that you were like, oh, damn, and had you thinking? Hmm. Well, I love, I, as you know, I love a good chat with the girls. How many times have we sat in a car, like, I'm supposed to be dropping you home by by X PM, and then Nick minute four hours later, we're still sitting in the car shooting the shit. Um, <laughs> no, I yeah, love a good chat with the girls. I feel like every chat. Oh, last night I had our friend Jen um, up pretty late, um, psychoanalyzing some dreams that I've had re- recently. Um, <laughs> so that was a good chat. Probably the most memorable, deep and meaningful that I've ever had was um with another one of our mutual friends somehow um good old Jamie he he had some really interesting reflections I think at the time I was feeling kind of like many teenagers feel um a little bit disillusioned with the direction that my life is heading you know like having that, that kind of ambiguity about your future and not having confidence in your own purpose or believing that there is a purpose you know the the sorts of feelings I think lots of young people and older people can relate to um and he had a really profound um soliloquy like he just he just was like he'd been waiting for someone to ask him about it um and he kind of just I'm not going to do a very good recap of it but he basically described this kind of um this the statistical probability of you being in the current moment with you know with the exact thoughts and feelings and experiences that you've had up until this point in time is so low like the fact that you've got yourself here to this moment in this tiny tiny corner of the universe is in itself significant and you don't need to you don't need to put any further like power or, or meaning behind your existence. You can live in that moment and just be happy that, that you've got to that point and it's okay. Um, and at the time it meant a lot to me and it, it, in times of like where I'm questioning myself and where I'm heading, I think about, I think about those sort of the, the cosmic probability of me being here and, and just think, yeah, it's enough that I am here and that I've got to this point that will do for now. I don't need to look any further. 
Oh, Jamie, I can just imagine how he would have delivered that in like his deep, rich baritone voice. And he just would have said that as if he'd been, yeah, just sitting on that gym for such a long time. But that is such a beautiful way to like frame this moment now. Mm. And I like how it just, the way that he's put it is that you just existing is more than enough. Like, nothing even anything else on top of that cool cherry on top but just to treasure life itself that's so beautiful oh. i hope that's what he was trying to tell me at the time but that's what i took away from it anyway. <laughs> oh that's so beautiful and he, might, he might be like no bitch i told you to go to therapy <laughs> hey another important takeaway still is, still is life changing still positive yeah, true, true. All good advice. All good advice. It's hilarious. Um, I wanted to start this episode because there's so many things that we could talk about with you, Lils. You're just amazing. Um, I love your brain. Sexy. I um, love your brain. <laughs> um, but what I kind of wanted to start talking about was just what's happening in this current moment. And it's this Delta variant just literally taking over the whole country. Oh my goodness, it really came out of nowhere. Um, but it's so interesting, the conversations that are happening around this recent outbreak um, and kind of painting the picture that we live in. And I think we kind of forgot about, I mean, last time when this happened, everyone was like, well, all of these social inequities existed before COVID and they're here. So, you know, change must happen. And then we went back to level one and that conversation kind of disappeared too. But now mm. it's coming back up again. And um, one thing that's happened recently that I'm like, oh, I, w- I want to unpack this with Lily was the reporting on that um, outbreak in Auckland. Um, and they highlighted um Pacific community and you know they're like South Auckland and um, basically brown people blah 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 um, and kind of put the blame on the brown community um, but when the initial outbreak happened it was I don't know I think it was I'm not very familiar with Auckland but apparently it's a very white privileged community but there was no ethnicity assigned to that reporting um, there was no blame Uh, Actually, there was probably more of a sense of, well, amazing, good on you for going out there and getting the COVID test to begin with. But there is none of that um, when it comes to reporting in South Auckland. And I just, yeah, I wanted to unpack that a little bit with you and and get your thoughts on that. A, it's like a woman who fuck up is back to Pacific heritage, but just as a person who like studied in, in media and is, yeah, Mm. formed in that space like well yeah what do you think of that reporting and the stories that it's kind of telling us inadvertently about those two different communities yeah yeah I think there's a there's two kind of points to unpack there and I'm I'm quite wary of like talking out of turn because they really the feelings and thoughts I have about it is based on my own experience and perspective like I as someone who works in communication in the public relations industry I'm really mindful of the relationship that members of my professional community have with news media Mm -hmm. um, and also the the sort of standards and the professional standards and ethics that we hold ourselves to as well so when I think about these kinds of representations in media I try really hard to do it without judgment and you know like kind of look at it from a very experiential point of view um so for me yeah like that situation that you've described where certain um demographics of people are given privileges that others are not when it comes to reporting for me that's a byproduct of how our news media is produced and by who it is produced. So um, there's a really like f- kind of fundamental like idea when it comes to, to um, reporting that isn't, I don't think is really widely accepted among, uh, among journalistic communities. And, and that's because um, traditionally, you know, like especially for, um, for journalists who've come up either through their profession or through tertiary study, 
there's this kind of mythic quality to how we talk about media and journalism and the kinds of words that we use are, you know, impartial and journalism should be without bias, just, just reporting the facts. Um, and often they're described as the fourth estate, which is quite a, it's quite a Eurocentric um, concept, but it basically positions news media as the fourth key power that holds um, different parts of society to account. And I think in the traditional societal view, that's the clergy, like, you know, the church, um, the nobility uh, and the, the commoners or something like that. And that's based off um, systems of power that, that were kind of inherited from Western societies. And those values are, are something that I hear a lot of people, you know, even in kind of, living room conversations or, or the comments on stuff, you know, you, you hear people expressing this frustration a lot, like that they don't believe news media is unbiased and impartial anymore. And, and they're expressing this sort of disappointment with the quality of news that we're seeing these days. And I think that really gets to the like crux of the problem. We're, we've told ourselves for a long time and we keep telling ourselves that, any one person or any one newsroom could ever tell the facts in an objective way. And that, in my opinion, like just in my opinion, that has never been true. Like you change a story just by retelling it. Your, your eyes don't see the same things that I see. Your heart doesn't feel the same feelings that I feel. So when you're telling the facts as you see them, as you feel them, it's not going to be the same as when I do it. And in that way, I don't think you can ever be impartial or unbiased. And as consumers of media, you know, as people who maybe don't have the privilege of being in a newsroom, creating those frames, we have to be really conscious that everything we come across is just an expression of a particular individual's background. So for me, I have a lot of time for news media that embeds the storyteller's perspective in their journalism and makes really conscious choices about who is telling a story and why they're, they're the person who is telling it. Um, and actually that, that tends to be like Kaupapa Māori and Pacifica-led organisations. So things like Itangata and Tangata Pacifica, like those newsrooms are really well known for um, seeking, you know, comment and experience not necessarily from um and you know a university lecturer on a topic but on someone with lived experience in a particular area and I, I do feel like that's the way we should be going you know as a society like the stories and the narratives that we value should be based on the person's relationship to what they're telling we we don't have to we don't have to give the tools to people who aren't best equipped to tell a story anymore we can take those tools to people in our own communities and say tell me what you see tell me what you hear and feel and how much you know how much more meaningful would that be rather than an outsider's perspective of what's happening to have that inside scoop as it were and that's just my thoughts and feelings about it. And I'm not saying that every news report, like I, I, there is an element of like, we have our own people working in that environment, working under certain, you know, resourcing pressures. And sometimes they do have to make decisions that in hindsight are and maybe not the best narrative decisions. So I'm trying, you know, removing, removing judgment from that space. It's not an easy job and, there are huge pressures on our on our journalists um, and our community of journalists. Um, at the same time, we know that representation and the stories that we tell about ourselves have a direct impact on, on how we, as members of a community, feel towards those people, how we how we talk about their involvement in a community. So there is a you know, there's an obligation and a duty there too. 
Thank you so much for highlighting that because for someone like me who has no idea about that kind of stuff and no real understanding of what it's like to be working in that space, I see something like that and I'm just like, that's horribly racist. How dare they? Blah, blah, blah. Like I'm automatically on defense mode. And to be honest, I think that's a valid response too, eh? Because like you're like, more now it's like there are communities that are really not not served well by mainstream media so it, i think it's okay to you know like it's okay to feel like that well thank you for giving me for validating my feelings but, <laughs> but when i do get into that mode it's definitely very much defense attack but there's no space to really sit down and think about it because from what you've told me I'm just like well we really do have a big systemic problem because I loved how you framed it how you're when you retell a story you're looking at it from what you see and what you feel but if you if you know mainstream media does not even think about what marginalized communities think and feel about well how is that reporting ever going to be representative of the true diversity in our community um and how is it ever going to break those chains of those stereotypes um and it's a big ask eh like it's it is really hard to ask a you know a a news organization that maybe is predominantly made up by a certain like group and class even you know like that's a big part of it too of people to go into spaces that they might never have experienced in their personal lives and to tell a really considerate and strong story like that is a hard ask but that is what like that's what we're asking our storytellers to do and it does feel important that we start thinking about new ways to do that and and is the way that we've always done it the best way um because i you know like things have changed so much in in, in our lifetime i can only imagine what's going to happen in the next 20 30 years um and that's that's something we could look at really positively as a a space for innovation and opportunity and sharing um but also you know we're human so we also look at it with a degree of fear and skepticism and <laughs> and, and protectionism <laughs> it is yeah there honestly is a lot of fear like um i was talking about this on the show the other day haha by myself but i was just talking about it's honestly so funny solo recording you're just having like a mania with yourself but i was talking about that how increasingly as there's more um te reo Māori being used in broadcasting so not journalism but in broadcasting people are just like doing little bits of te reo Māori, just like yoda and all that kind of stuff and the complaints have just increased since that and i just think oh there is a lot of fear in in those people who are sending complaints and a lot of protecting protecting what god knows god knows who but there is a lot of that fear and that protection and you know what would be i reckon a real interesting look at this i'm like we're in the middle of this podcast i'm like you know who you should get on next um (laughs) but i feel like a really interesting person to talk to would be like an expert or someone who knows about that psychology of loss stuff like why is it that people who you know in in some people's perspective they have so much why are they afraid of other people having stuff too? Like, you know, or, or why is there that fear of, of losing something when, when confronted with something new? I reckon that would be so interesting. Um, that would be so yeah. interesting because you see that fear playing out in so many spaces, like fear against migrants and refugees. Like, apparently we are here stealing all the jobs. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what are you, like, what are you losing? Did yeah, I used to get that a lot when I worked in the hotel and it was like, do you, re- I'm sorry, I didn't realise you wanted this weekend job that starts at 6.30am scrubbing shit off other people's toilets. Like, you know, like I didn't, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I feel like we're like, I feel like there's lots of rich, rich and engaging news and media sources out there already. Um, like I heard about this really cool podcast called His Scarves and Good Yarns. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> God bless it. 
thank you for doing a wee plug. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, but talking about just that story that you've just brought up, um, how does like racism and we can talk about sexism as well, actually. Um, but how do those two things show up in your life? Because um, even now to this day, there's so many people who just really don't see racism in New Zealand. Like mm. they don't think it's a thing. And just because we don't have the very loud in your face racism anymore you know it doesn't invalidate the other forms of racism that are out there um but yeah how does it show up for you um in your day-to-day life Mm. that's a great question all these questions have been great it's that's a it's a really hard place to know where to start because sometimes some of the experiences I have, they're filled with self-doubt and I honestly couldn't say hand on heart whether some of them are due to the fact that I walk through this world and people see a woman or a woman of colour or just someone who has a dumbass look on their face. Like, it's hard to know how much of your experience of other people's like view of you is is based on a part of your identity but i do think the most demonstrable way that race like that racism and sexism is so obvious to me is in a health context mm, like tell me more well we we can de- uh, this is terrible but like we can demonstrate this basically on death statistics but um pacifica and maori and other ethnic minorities in new zealand that is um women people from um lower socioeconomic backgrounds we all have far poorer health outcomes than um, people from wealthier um, Pākehā backgrounds. Um, And that's partly because of, like, the social determinants of health. So that's things like access to um, food and shelter and, and appropriate shelter, you know, like homes that don't make us sick transport employment like it's all the things that um become harder to access when you're living um in a system that disadvantages who you are they're just they're less accessible to you it's partly because of that but it's also because of unconscious well hope i'm hoping unconscious bias within our system where um health practitioners and, and even even the systems that we use to assess people, like not necessarily individuals, just the systems, are degrading this, the seriousness of, of kind of health issues that are brought forward by certain types of people. So there's, there's a lot of research around that where um, in kind of like blind tests and things like that, health professionals tend to downgrade pain as reported by women, especially women of colour. And we're not going to we're not going to be able to fix the kind of cyclical nature of ill health where, you know, when you're unwell and you just keep getting more unwell because you can't afford or access good health care. Um, we're not gonna fix that if we don't have a really close look at ourselves and how we think about other people and their experiences and some of that I suppose is very difficult to do when um, medical training and and kind of getting into the the health professions is gatekept a little bit by the fact that you have to um, have exceptionally good academic rankings that quite often it's an extended period of study and if you're 
coming from a situation where you need to be working and you need to be earning. It's, it's just not an option. But there's lots of reasons why there are barriers to kind of making sure our workforce is representative and can represent the interests of people that are being not being served by the system. Uh, but we do, like, we need to fix that because that's, for me, that's kind of one of the most obvious places where the effects of race, any kind of ism you can name, is obvious. And those, I don't know, we have that data about a lot of different demographics. So, like, for example, people who have um, mental illness are more likely to suffer from physical ailments either as a side effect of medication that they're taking, um, either because their complaints aren't taken seriously or because of a combination of, of those sorts of things. It's like we, we know this and we have the data around it. I think it's just a really, the health sector is a really complex place and we kind of have fumbled for a plan and, and for resourcing to fix those things for a long time. And like you said, in times of crisis, like when you have a international pandemic, um, those things really come to the fore, and we we're much we're much more likely as individuals to kind of stand up and beat our fist on the table and say enough is enough. Um, but the not very the not very sexy and sustainable part of that conversation is that they're they're big system fixes that need to happen, you know, like in addition to increased attention and um, I guess scrutiny of what's happening to our people. We also need really brave systemic change. And brave and, people to take charge of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like, I, I'm more certain that's like, yeah, like we've been talking about the health and disability sector review for like a long time and I I know it's no it's no easy thing to fix like it's not it's not something that you can do within a election cycle but gotta start somewhere <laughs> yeah, especially at this point right just first small steps still moving towards where you need to go right um but isn't that crazy how even when we're talking about things like health um how that wider conversation it just paints a really big picture of race relations in new zealand um and how we think we're all good but we're actually not and it just comes up in all these different forms but if you are of the majority unless you have that awareness already you have no idea that it exists but if you are of a marginalised community, it just makes it even more obvious and it shows up in every facet of your life. Um, and yeah, hard out, eh? And, like, I think in some ways people who are part of the mainstream are aware of, the, like, you know, I don't discredit the ability of people who haven't experienced something firsthand to understand it, but it's far less common for people of a particular background to understand an issue and agree about its source. Like, you know, like a lot of people, if you are my, like our parents' generation from that kind of, yeah, Pākehā background, they talk a lot about, you know, the meritocracy. And, and I think, you know, they know that things like homelessness and ill health are a problem for particular parts of our society, but they really disagree on, on the reasons for that. And, like for me it's all around the big c of colonialism but for some people in our society they really do have this this moral yardstick that they're clinging to and, and this idea that um what you have in life you've worked for or what you have in life is somehow the result of of your the sweat of your back and you know like that kind of stuff where it's like they understand the issue but they don't agree on its source and therefore don't agree with the best resolution which is one of the biggest challenges for us I reckon um and if you, if you don't want to talk about this it's totally fine but with having those kind of 
these kind of conversations with people who do have a different opinion to you like how do you navigate navigate those kind of conversations Mm. I would love to say with a completely straight face that I do it with kindness and bravery and I'm I never um I, I never like give ground on on the things that I believe to be true but in reality it always it comes down to who I'm talking to like there's there's always complexities to every relationship and and you know and like in, in the different cultures that make up my family there are just things that you don't say to your older loved ones and there there are places that I I find it really hard to walk alongside them and um so it really depends but I'm trying more like I'm trying my my best every day to think about think about the person that I'm talking with or you know having a discussion with and to understand their perspective and and why they might feel a certain way and and then often that leads us down a path of understanding that often we all we want this that we want similar outcomes and we have similar motivations it's just our individual experiences have led us to very different conclusions and understanding that helps me not you know not react in anger or frustration and and to not hurt my cause by coming across really alienating because we all we're all at different parts of a journey and and I know they feel the same about me we're like some of the opinions and thoughts I have someone could also call that like naivety or pie in the sky thinking and and I want to be able to engage with people in a way where they feel like I'm listening and I and I'm taking on board their comments too but far out it's hard eh? especially (laughs) especially with those with those older relatives um and at the end of the day it's like nothing changes when you have love in your heart for someone nothing will change that you can just hope that the parts of the parts of them that make them a good person are also the things that will help them make a good decision you know doesn't it's not always a political decision about anything you know um, and would it be fair that that kind of same advice translates into the world of love? Because, like, on the show, I get quite a few questions about, you know, people who are in relationships with someone who is um, Pakiha and their partner just has no understanding and it just often leads to very frustrated conversations and arguments. Um, but, yeah, would you say that that advice with your family still can can move into the world of love as well yeah I think it can but it, there's a there's there's different kind <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't feel right when I say it out loud but I feel like there are different um expectations that you have on different people who you hold different relationships with so mm-hmm. I feel like it's no one's responsibility to educate or inform people on their own, on other people's ignorance, you know, like someone's inability or unwillingness to understand should never be your problem. But oftentimes in love, any kind of love, we do take, we do shoulder that responsibility because we care about that person and we know like we know the beauty inside their thoughts and their mind and we want to be able to reconcile their trash bag opinions with this rosy view of them you know so we we do invest quite a lot of time into like trying to align our friends and our partners and our family members points of views with our own values I don't think that's a bad thing as long as you're up for the up for the chat you know like if you know I don't know if you know you don't want to be in a relationship or any kind of relationship with someone who doesn't have a innate understanding of your values and your experiences. That's nothing to feel guilty about. And it's not a failure of your relationship. It's just you acknowledging that maybe the differences between you are too much of a barrier to, to that kind of 
the, the kind of relationship that you want. Um, but no one, you know, no one stays the same for very long. Like we're always constantly growing and changing. And if that's a journey that you want to go on with your significant other, it can be really rewarding. I'm thinking of all the, like, thinking of times when that just hasn't been the case in my own personal relationships. Like, um, it's much easier said than done. Like, it's never like, oh, I'm committing to a journey of understanding and deep reflection with my partner and it's going to be beautiful and we're going to come out the side stronger and closer than ever. Like, what it actually looks like is tears and silent treatment and and frustration at, at why um, why you have such different opinions on things. But that can be, you know, that's kind of part of something that you move through together. And if, if you're up for it, that's awesome. And if you're not, there's no, there's no shame in like saying that and, and being honest about it. Oh, thank you for being honest with us and, and, and keeping it real with us. Cause it's true. Spill the tea though. I'd like to know who's, who's thinking of like dating a white boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so funny. But you know what? Even it doesn't have to be like, with a white boy, there are some so mm. like, I've had so many hard conversations with um yeah, of course Arthur yeah. about like religion and race and sometimes it has been like I literally want to pull my hair out. Like it, it, it's so hard when it's like it's right there. Why can you not just see it? Yeah. It's true, it is like a decision to kind of make that commitment to go through that journey with your partner. And it's very true. People change. Like People change, and it's it's a beautiful thing. Um, I'm going to change tack a little bit here and go. Mm, mm. Oh, you're not totally impressed with my dating advice? Nah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to skip to another. Skip to another question. <laughs> no, I, I would totally understand that. <laughs> um, this podcast is all about having uncomfortable conversations, and I would love to know for you what is something that you struggle to talk about? And it doesn't just have to be in the race space. Um, it can be anything in the race, inclusion, diversity, or things that we just don't talk about enough. So can be body stuff or mental health, mm. or sexuality. Yeah. What do I struggle with? One of the most uncomfortable conversations. I think, some of the most uncomfortable conversations I have are with myself and that's around examining my own thinking about things. And I would be really interesting to, I would be really interested to hear what you think about this, but something I really struggle with now, like in this current kind of phase of my life, when a lot of our friends are, um, you know, having, having children and raising families um, or, yeah, uh, yeah, I think kind of being in a more conscious part of my life, being around children in particular. So, like, growing up, there were always a lot of kids around, but you weren't, you know, I wasn't necessarily in a position to make conscious parenting decisions, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. I really struggle with my own internalised misogyny i hope i'm describing this right yeah i'm just not revealing like something really crude and awful about myself but i really struggle with some internalized misogyny and how that affects my kind of interactions with with children especially young girls where i feel like there are things that i know to be true like that you know bodies are natural and beautiful and we should never instill shame in children for having bodies um, and we shouldn't sexualize them in any way. But holding that alongside the knowledge that we live in an incredibly sexualized society and there are people out there, wherever that may be, there are people in our communities that do mean children harm and because of the global nature of our digital world it means that things that you put out there that should be 
innocent and are and should be about you know exploring your identity as a young woman and and presenting yourself and your body in a way that you feel empowered by in reality sometimes those images and those videos are taken into really unsafe spaces by people who who don't necessarily share my same values and that really worries me and it's like how do you as a parent how do you as someone who you know mentors or isn't in a kind of protecting role for young people how do you encourage them to have confidence and love for themselves knowing full well that that is the very thing that could be taken advantage of in an in a digital you know in a digital space so things like i don't i don't think there's any like i don't i don't think there's any harm in like girls getting dressed up and like filming a fun tiktok video and like sharing it with all their friends but then what happens when people are are teasing them or making fun of them or sexualizing them in a way that they're not comfortable with like how I don't know how we do that. And I don't know if it's a, like, is it, is it an asshole opinion to, to be like, oh, honey, I don't think you should put that on TikTok because you never know who's going to see it. Like that is kind of, that is kind of not supporting people to, to be who they want to be. It's, it's like giving into that fear that like you shouldn't do anything or, or, or put anything out there that could offend or, or, hurt someone like you know I don't know it's 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 really hard and I haven't figured out how I feel about it let alone let alone what should be done about it you know I can definitely see how that kind of struggle would just completely and not even just like I'm talking about us in general I can see how that kind of thinking cripples how young women you know just be in this world in terms of expressing who they really are through how they dress or having confidence in their bodies or making sure that they fit within the male gaze but not fit so well that they're completely sexualized and there are so many fine lines that women try so hard to just delicately walk along um but men don't have that same struggle. It's so hard. And we do sexualize young girls from a really young age. And it's so strange. Yeah. Like, it's do you, so- I feel like I've fallen into the, there was, you know, do you know the movie Misrepresentation? It's like a, it's like a documentary style kind of. Ooh, no, I don't think I've heard of that one. Uh-huh. I'm going to rent it. This is, oh fuck, I don't even know if you can do this anymore. I'm going to rent it on iTunes and send it to you. I'm probably revealing my age now. <laughs> um, but there's this really good quote in there. I hope I've got the right one. And it's like, um, it describes this tension between this widespread paranoia and fear of pedophilia balanced with the hypersexualization of children in media. Like, both of those two things are really prevalent in our society at the same time. And I feel like I know, like in my own mind, that I've fallen into that trap and I'm just not sure how to like, you know, the, yeah, I'm not sure how to climb out of that hole and, you know, do the thing of calling out representations that are not appropriate while also kind of, you know, putting a shield in front of our young, I don't, I don't think it is just young girls now. I think it's pretty, it is across the board, like all of our young people, like so that they can have some kind of barrier between them and the nastier parts of what's happening out there. I feel like if we don't, I don't know, if we don't give our young people the tools to, to manage what they experience, especially in online communities, we're going to have real problems. Like you and I had the the privilege almost of growing up in a time when we weren't, you know, like there were magazines and movies and TV and YouTube and all that, but we weren't bombarded constantly with some of the stuff that these kids are getting now. And the, the expectations are changing so rapidly yeah, we need to think about 
we need to think about how we're going to do that. You and I should just get together some weekend, figure out a plan, do it. Yeah, Easy. Kids, eh? But there's yep. actually, like, even with my younger siblings, I'm like, wow, we have grown up in just completely different environments or digital environments. Like, we would literally use our social media when we were only on our lap, like computers because back then we didn't really have laptops and so that was only one two hours a day max and then when we said brb we literally meant to be right back when i physically get back to my laptop and there like we could grow up without the safety of or with the safety of not having digital eyes watching us all the time but it is like a new time now it really is and it it's still those similar themes of misogyny and how yeah, yeah. all young people yeah all young people are sexualized it's not just women actually i retract my earlier statement it's not just women. i take it back i just <laughs> i retract i retract it yeah i don't know i'd be interested like have you ever had one of the kids on on the show like, i re- i would be interested to hear what their um what the things are that kind of keep them up at night. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's more of a worry for me in my kind of decrepit and aging state or if it's just something that they've learned to live with. Cause like fire out kids are pretty res like the stuff that they're going through now, especially with like schools being um, non-contact and stuff, it's, you'd have to be pretty resilient. They yeah they are they they do bounce back quick. Kids are very resilient. Um, but it's interesting. Like when we, I feel like and the, the, another thing that I've noticed between the kids, like the boys and I, is that when like we were growing up, we didn't. It wasn't cool to be talking about feminism or climate change. Like literally, <laughs> you did. You were the dorkiest kid. But now it seems like people do want to engage in those conversations. Um, but I don't think those conversations are quite adapted to the unique challenges that they're growing up in. And it feels like historical challenges of this is what, this is what we're fighting for when we're talking about feminism. This is what we're fighting for when we're talking about being anti-racist. That's really interesting. And yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh, here we are leading a fight to, um, yeah, to like right a particular wrong. And they're just like, Actually, what I'd really like is to post a video in a crop top and someone not call me fat, like, or, or not associate my body with something that I don't agree with. Like, yeah, maybe they could, yeah. Well, God, if only we knew some kids. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Let's if, ask them. <laughs> I, off, like, off the show, I do have these conversations with you. Mm. Not for the first time, and I hope the boys are listening. I have thought how lucky your brothers are to to have you. That's really sweet. Um, Time is going by very quickly, and I really dislike that. But one thing that I really, really want to talk about with you, um, Lily, before... I think we'll just have to have you back again, to be honest, because we haven't covered that much ground. There's so much more that I I want to go with you. But um, you do a lot of mahi in the Pacific community, and you do whakapapa back to Pacific heritage. Um, And I think this is my my mind has been completely transformed after taking Pussy 101. And I generally do see New Zealand as a Pacific nation. Before, oh, Pussy 101 is my Pacific studies paper at that I took last trimester at uni. Um, But before I took Pussy 101, I would have never, ever really thought about that, to be honest. Um, But now I genuinely see New Zealand as a Pacific nation, but I think as a country, we're still not quite there yet. Um, And I wanted to know, in your opinion, what are the major misconceptions about the Pacific community? And what do you wish that average the average, in air quotations, because I really don't know what the average looks like or, you know, what they stand for. But anyways, what do you wish the average Kiwi understood about the Pacific community? Mm. Um, what do I wish the average Kiwi understood about the Pacific community? I think... Mm. This answer kind of isn't, it's not independent of the relationship of tangata whenua and tau iwi to, to New Zealand. Like, for any 
Yeah, gosh. This is assuming that the average New Zealander doesn't already know this, and I feel like that's an uncharitable assumption. But I really wish that all New Zealanders and anyone really who lived in the Pacific had clear insight into the impacts of colonialism on the original inhabitants of this region. Mm-hmm. I think most New Zealanders know it was significant, but they don't see the far-reaching effects. They, they actually do not see the link between disposition of land and culture and the position that our people find ourselves in at the moment. And it's not hard. Like, I think we make it so much harder than it has to be. If you're turfed off your land and divorced from your culture and your language, those are intergenerational cuts and you bleed. Generation upon generation, you're bleeding out. So the solutions that we propose that are, you know, three-year, four-year, ten-year solutions are never going to measure up to generations of harm that that has done. And I, I say that about the Pacific community, but really I'm also, you know, referencing Tangata Whenua and their role, yeah, their special and unique, you know, relationship with the Crown in New Zealand. Like, it's obviously different to what Pacifica people is. So that's one thing that I would just like all New Zealanders understand, regardless of their background. Um, But in general terms, I also think we can all, all non-Pacific people can do a little bit more work to understand the nuances of different Pacific communities. Like it's not one homogenous group. There are significant and um, beautiful differences between Samoa and Tongan, Tokelau and Fiji and Kiribati communities. And one, one solution, or I'm always thinking in terms of like, oh, we're trying to solve a problem. There's no problem necessarily. It's just understanding each other and valuing each other's contribution to our multicultural society is around acknowledging that we're not one homogenous lump of taro eating people. Like we're, we're, <laughs> we're just funny because actually Chinese people eat a lot of taro as well. So I've kind of like managed to group everyone, all of my people into one big box, but <laughs> like, yeah, there's, there's, we don't have to be one people and one country to be united you know we can stand in unity together while also treasuring and pressure um and privileging our differences like that's possible and i'd love to see us do that while also acknowledging the long lasting effects of colonialism I know we're definitely going over time, but I actually, I would like to end the episode on this question. Um, (laughs) Well, and I say this again and again and again, but no, because that was a beautiful way of just putting, putting that together, sense of solidarity, but still honoring the differences. As someone with mixed heritage in that case then, what does solidarity and being united like mean to you? Like when someone says the word solidarity, what what is your working understanding of that word? Mm. Solidarity for me is about understanding who you are and where you've come from and how those experiences shape the ways you interact with other people. So I think, you know, if you're going to support someone in their struggle or um, in, in their work to get to a certain place, you've got to understand what you're bringing to the, what you're bringing to the relationship, um, both in terms of 
you know, resources and tools, like the ways in which you can help, but also what kind of baggage you're bringing and, and being really careful that you're not um, bringing a mate to the party that you didn't really want there. Um, yeah, so I think solidarity for me is about supporting each other in a really mindful way. And that starts with yourself looking at who you are. Oh, I love how, like, whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, everyone always says, like, it starts with you. And that is so true because how you look at yourself and the questions and the empathy and the love and understanding that you have for yourself, you hold for others, but you have to be able to do that for yourself first. So, oh, thank you so much for navigating us through your sexy, sexy brain talking about... <laughs> belonging and identity and media and hypothetical children and how they'll be protected from the dangers of the digital world i know um, i hope that didn't induce too much like anxiety like it's not all doom and gloom in this world is it no our he gives me a lot of hope yeah <laughs> so Same thank man. you so much for giving your time and your thoughts um, to Hedskaus and Gideons. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting this space, man. It's so cool to have, like, different conversations brought to the fore. Oh, thank you, Lil, and thank you for everyone tuning in, and we'll see you for the next episode. Bye, about. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.